0: This is Hemant Mehta, and you're listening to the Friendly Atheist Podcast. If you like what you're listening to, please go to patreon.com slash friendly atheist podcast. I'm solo here today because I'm doing an interview with someone I think you're going to enjoy listening to. Alice Gretchen is an actress and writer who may be most familiar to audiences from her role as Mads Ryback in the ABC family show The Lying Game. What audiences may not know is that Alice experienced what she calls a painful yet rewarding transition from Christianity to atheism. It led her to create a website called daretodoubt.org, a resource for people leaving their faith. She now lives in Los Angeles and has just published a book about her journey out of religion called Wayward. During the interview, my microphone was not working properly. However, 90% of the talking is from Alice, and you should be able to hear her just fine. Alice, thank you so much for joining me. So I read the book and it is a fascinating story from your journey from not just Christian to atheist, but like pretty fundamentalist uh, preaching family to atheist. And I'm wondering, without giving away the entire book here, do you want to give a short version for people listening about your religious journey growing up and the kind of tipping point where you realized, okay, these problems that I'm encountering with my family and the religion and the version of it we're practicing, this may not be the way I want to go.
1: Yes. So, uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, I was raised non-denominationally Christian. My parents were very emphatic about that we were non-denominational because um, in their opinion and in the opinion of many of the people that we went to fellowship with, denominations and branches limited what God could do through the Holy spirit. When we subscribe to a certain sect or a certain ideology, a certain branch um, it to them felt more limiting, which to me, the ironic part is that it kind of non-denomination, non-denominationalism kind of became its own very recognizable denomination. As a result of that Um, it's yeah. And, and it wasn't until I, was in my late teens, early twenties, that I sort of realized that the media, the secular media, called our type of Christianity evangelical, which is a pretty broad blanket. But I also feel, to me, how I personally distinguished it was: we were the t- there. There were two types of Christians in my mind: the ones who thought it was okay to have sex before marriage, and the kind that didn't. We were definitely of the kind that did not think it was okay. So um, that the media called us evangelical for, um, which confused me because I grew up thinking evangelical was its own denomination and we were not denominational. So it was, right. it was very confusing. And you,
0: you didn't just go to church though. Like your family almost as I'm reading it, it seemed like you came from an army family where you're moving all the time, to <laughs> all these different places, but no, that's just what your family did as you were growing up because of their faith.
1: Yes. So my parents were uh, sort of a minority within a minority, like the type, like the type of Christianity that we were into, even though it was non-denominational um other people might also call it charismatic, uh, which is kind of like a niche spin off of Pentecostalist based Christianity. It's the in in brief, it's like the Holy Spirit, tongues praying, like spirit slaying, falling on the floor, laughing, having visions and projecting prophecies onto people. Um, that was the type you of You made a story.
0: reference to this in the book too, but there's a YouTube video uh with Benny Hinn uh. Yes. Let me- What's the song body's
1: at the, the bodies at
0: the floor. And that's not a far cry from what you experienced at church at as all. well.
1: Not at all. Not at all. No, it was very, um, very demonstrative, very emotional and emotive and very spontaneous. Like uh, most of the time there was not a a ritual of like, we have praise and worship in this time. Then we have a pre-planned sermon from this time. We're going to pass the offering in between. It wasn't so uh, ritualized. It was very like, let's see what God's going to do today and whatever the spirit puts on your heart. And maybe that means we're all going to howl like wolves at the moon for the next hour and a half. Maybe it means we're going to like sob and confess our, our like sexual perversions to each other to hold each other accountable, you know, it, who
0: knows does. What yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. so
1: it was very, um, very much, uh, very spontaneous, uh, very Holy roller revival tent type of Christianity. And my parents, even within that circle were, uh, particularly unusual because, um, they, what came out of that for them was, uh, in short, the, my parents were swept into a, a charismatic movement that would later be known as the Toronto Blessing, and it spread around the world. I read about this in the book. Um, <laughs> it spread around the world. My, my family was heavily involved, and it really influenced my parents' faith. And long story short, led them to believe that God was calling them to give up worldly employment, and then eventually even our housing, to trust in God Uh, implicitly to provide for us. And my parents called it living by faith um, because there's plenty of Bible verses to back up. Jesus says, you know, you have to sell your possessions and give to the poor and then come follow me. My parents took verses like that, rather literally, even though they took very many other verses uh, a lot less literally and more as symbolically or metaphorically. and They're hardly alone
0: in that one, yeah.
1: Hardly (laughs) alone, no, hardly. And, and, And that's where there's a lot of wiggle room with the Bible and many other spiritual texts, but specific to Christianity, it's like... You can say whatever whatever verse the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart at that time is the one that you should listen to, even if it's contradictory to other verses in the Bible. Um, so, it, which we know there are many. So, and
0: I've, I've definitely heard of Christian families very devout who might move because they're going to do a church plant, they're going to start something up. But your your family basically said, "Okay, we're giving up our house. We're going to move." But they didn't have a plan necessarily. They didn't even know where you all were going.
1: No. So my parents had been missionaries when I was a toddler, where they gave up their careers. My mom was a, a concert pianist and piano instructor, and my father was a police officer in Berkeley, California. Uh, my parents gave up their careers to become full-time missionaries in Nepal and Thailand when I was very little. Um, I don't cover that part too much in the book because I barely remember any of it. Sure. Um, but Uh, so the idea of uprooting their lives and giving up certain worldly titles and possessions was not necessarily new to my parents, but yeah, there was a difference. The first time there was a very clear mission directive of like church planting, home church planting. And, uh, after the Toronto blessing, Uh, It was much more of a, let's follow God wherever he leads, wherever he puts in our hearts. Maybe it's going to be to go to this campground. Maybe we're going to meet someone in this campground. They're going to invite us to stay with them. And so we did for a few months and then we meet these people and we stay with relatives that we know. And so it was very, uh, very nomadic and God led. And I say that in quotations, not to be disrespectful to what my parents genuinely believed, because I do think that, um, where they were at at that time, for them, their faith truly was genuine. I don't think they were hiding behind God as a reason to avoid having a conventional American life. I think they, um, or or just to in, uh, indulge their own desires. I think I think that they genuinely believed they were um, acting in the best conscience of what they felt God put in their hearts. So.
0: It is a scary thought to know where they're going to say we're going to go to, let's say, a campground and like maybe someone will help us. But you don't know. And that means I mean that I forgot how old you were when you all started that particular journey, but old enough to be aware of what was happening and going. But like that messes with even homeschooling that messes with having friends because you're going to maybe pick up and leave them any given moment. So, um how does that interaction work with your siblings as the, all of that is happening? Hmm. Like you either become really close to them or you maybe have nothing in common with them at some point. Like sure. but they're your only friends. You have no.
1: <laughs> sure. Um, no, I th- I think we definitely went the former route. I think it made all of us very tight in it. And we're all still very close to this day. Um, there were five of us. And like you said, we were all homeschooled. I think my, my very youngest sister is the only one of us who Went to public school for a brief stint when she was in high school. I think it was only one or two years, um, and I was so jealous that she <laughs> had a high school experience. But by that point, I was living on my own in LA, having a grand old time, and it was it all worked out, you know. But it's um, sure. but yeah i I think that having having my siblings as the constant friends in my life definitely brought us closer. Uh, it was a very different experience for all of us, and I addressed this a little bit in the book that we'd all we could all write a memoir about our upbringing and it would be very different. Um, it would, I think it was uh, particularly challenging for me as the oldest for several reasons. I was 11 when um, my dad gave up employment and I was 13 when we eventually also gave up housing. So the window between when I was 11 to when I was like, pretty well into when I was 14, I would say. Those were my, my middle school years, you might you might say, were um, the most in unstable, uh, the most extreme, you might say. So uh, for me, it was very challenging. But for some of my siblings, it was a great old road trip. You know, you never we really <laughs> were going to end up next. We got to go see things that a lot of kids would love to see. A lot of kids would love to take a road trip across the country and not have school and go from national park to national park. And, ooh, let's meet these new friends. And we're going to stay with them for a few weeks, and we could just play. And you know, I think for me, I, 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 I just whether it's um, my biological makeup or just personality type, whatever it is, uh, I just was a kid that needed a little bit more constancy to feel like I was thriving. Um, and I don't think every kid needs that. Um, I remember my mom uh, saying how much fun she would have had if if she were a kid and getting to do this. And uh, I think, I think it was baffling a little bit to my parents that I did have such a hard
0: time with it
1: and and it's when okay. did
0: they realize you had a hard time with it
1: that is a very good question <laughs> I don't know I could answer for them um I think that I think that there were definitely moments I can definitely think of moments where they could see like you're not having an easy time with this why are you why are you just hold up with your headphones on all the time like why why aren't you present why aren't you you know and it would I would uh for me what it felt like is I would try to tell them like look, like, I, I really want a home. I want to go home. And to me, home was in Rockford, Illinois, which was the last stable home that I had. And so I would always say, I want to go home. And then the response would be, we'll talk to God about it because we're just following God. Um, and so it was a very confusing, for me, it made for a very confused emotional makeup of no. my parents on the one hand encouraging me to not bottle my feelings, to be open and communicative, to express myself. And I would sometimes try, but then the response that I would get, uh, to me did not feel like understanding or sympathy or empathy and certainly not didn't lead to any results that I would have hoped for. It, it usually just made me feel worse. Expressing my feelings often made me feel worse because the response was very, um, it just felt like a shrug of like, oh, well, You know, like
0: there was a part in the book where I think you all went back to Rockford for for like a short period of time when you were old enough to be like, I'm so ready to go home. Mm -hmm. And then you had to leave again after that. And uh, I mean, moving itself is a hard thing to do when you're at that like early teenage years to do it multiple times and to go through that. That's, that's rough. I I do want to talk about your acting career, but one thing that you brought up is like you're jealous of your sister for going through high school for a couple of years. But I'm wondering because the things you have acted in involve um, school age, college age, like antics and the things that go on at that age, like you don't necessarily have the personal experience to deal with that. So, like, I'm wondering, like, you're reading these scripts, you're going through those scenes. I'm wondering, like, maybe your colleagues on set have had some versions of that themselves. And are you the oddball in that sense? You're the one that is like, oh, is this what (laughs) happened? Or was it like by that time you kind of knew how everything worked?
1: You know, I'd, I'd say most of the time it was like how you were describing. It was very um, like I like I feel like I've run for prom or homecoming so many times as a fictional character, <laughs> um, having never even gone to a prom or homecoming myself. Right. In some ways, I feel like I got the best of the high school experiences without having to have any of the downsides, the boredom and the mundane and the, the bullying and, and things like that. So um, I've gotten to play a cheerleader. I've gotten to play the prom queen. I've gotten to play like the troubled ballerina. So uh, <laughs> it's 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 fun. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I would say that most of the people that I've worked with did have a little bit more of a conventional school upbringing. However, it's not uncommon in Hollywood at all for many young actors to have grown up on sets where they essentially are tutored. Um, if you are under 18 and do not have a diploma or GED yet, you are required by law to have an onset tutor. So um, I have several friends who were actors since they were children who kind of had like a sort of homeschooled, sort of tutored part-time, actually in school educational experience. So, um, and then, but most of the time I would say it was pretty Pretty, um, I guess, standard American education. Usually public school, sometimes a private school goer. Um, but yeah, it's it's it is fun to have those uh, moments of being like, oh, I wonder if this is what it's really like, and then be able to check like, is it really like this? Are there really cliques? Like, do the gods really sit differently? I don't know. And like, so much of it is is not. So much, well, and you know,
0: people watching these shows. I mean, the reason some of them become as popular as they do is because they shed some sort of truth on this fictional world you're all creating. So kids are watching those shows sometimes, and it's like, yeah, I mean, that's maybe an exaggerated version of what actually happens at my school. So (laughs) someone's getting it, someone's getting something out of that as they're doing it.
1: Yeah, and it's one of those like is life imitating art, or art imitating life. <laughs> right. Because I, I remember, and I, this was one of the sections of my book that I had to cut. Um, but I, it was my first day at school uh, when I was thirteen. I shadowed a girl that we were a, a random girl whose dad we met in a campground. We lived with them <laughs> for a few days, and they had a daughter my age who was who like couldn't believe I'd never been to school before. And so she was like, "Mom, can Alice be my shadow?" And so I went with her to school. And I was confronted with so many of the Hollywood ideas of school that I had because she went to a private Christian school, first of uh-huh. all, I should, I should say. Um, yeah. So it, there were uniforms required. There was only like 25 kids in her entire class. And so there weren't really cliques. Like there it was like... You don't have I, a choice. Had like a brick <laughs> ivy-colored tutor building and, you know, like swarms and throngs of kids. Like it wasn't... This was just some, some small little private school in Michigan. Um, and it was terrible. My first day of school was just the most mortifying, like uncomfortable awkward terrible experience i think
0: shadowing her was awkward
1: yeah because everywhere the reason why it was so awkward for me was because in each classroom that i went there was this whole introduction of like oh who's your friend tell us about your friend and then there would be a q a and be like where do you live and i would freeze like your right. head's like i we're <laughs> traveling right now oh well where do you normally go to school i'm homeschooled oh well wh- why are you guys traveling Uh, because God,
0: (laughs) and it would just
1: turn into this huge can of worms that would make everyone
0: Even at a Christian school, that might make people (laughs) uncomfortable.
1: Yes, all no. interesting, because it was almost like Christians especially had a hard time with the way my parents were living out their faith, because I don't know if it was because it made them feel implicitly, silently judged, like that's how they should live out their faith, or if it was just they were it's like their their god would never call a man to be unemployed and make his family be homeless and so maybe so how can they believe in the same god but it was almost sometimes i had the sense that it was almost christians who objected to my parents lifestyle more than people who were not in the church or didn't believe in god it was more just like huh interesting family you guys you guys are really interesting um and some Christians or strangers like just found us all together inspiring. Like, wow, you guys are sure. really walking your talk and
0: whatever <laughs> it was. <laughs> and so how does one go from that lifestyle to acting? And I remember when I was reading this, I was, I, I I want you to tell that story, but I was waiting for so many shady things to happen. And it sounds like you actually had a relatively positive experience making that transition, getting discovered and going from there. Um, and can you tell us like, yeah, how did you go from that lifestyle to acting?
1: Yes. So the condensed version of it would be, I believed that God opened a door for me to pursue acting and how that happened was, uh, God opened the door for me to start modeling in Colorado. My family eventually sort of settled in Colorado when I was 15, and it was there that I I did the homeschool thing and started going to college super young. Not because I was smart, but because it was just that's kind of what you do. You get your GED and start going to college if if you're college minded. And um, I kept getting approached by modeling scouts to to do modeling, and I prayed about it. My parents prayed about it. Um, my parents really encouraged me. So surprisingly, um, believing that it was a door God was opening to provide the money for me to go to nursing school. I was, I was set to go to nursing school. I wanted to be a missionary nurse and join YWAM. I had this whole very Christian plan, um, of how my life was gonna, was gonna go. And, um, I walked through the door of modeling, which eventually led to a talent manager from Los Angeles, um, inviting me to come out to LA for pilot season to pursue acting. And, uh, So, again, through a magical thinking lens, that's another open door. And simultaneously, Mm -hmm. there's doors closing for my nursing school. Um, The state of Colorado changed the state nursing requirements to be 18. Um, I was 16 at the time. So that door got closed that year the same time that...
0: So you couldn't just go to nursing school at the time. You had to fill up your time somehow.
1: Exactly. And it was like, oh, I guess this is, in, in my mind... Growing up the way that I did, and in my mind, it was like nothing happened without reason. Everything was either a door Satan was opening or a door God was opening, and you only find out the hard way. And so it was like I I just figured like okay, well this wouldn't happening be happening if God didn't want it to. So I guess I'll go to L.A. Um, and my parents again were very supportive, also believing that this was an open door that that I could walk through, and they were always very encouraging of all of their children to. Um, Follow their heart. And clearly, I've painted out them to be quite unconventional people themselves. So it wasn't, um, they, they, there, I don't think there's anything us kids could have done that would have been considered too unconventional for them. They were already so pushing the envelope in all of their different ways that a lot of times people are surprised that my very Christian parents would let me move to Los Angeles by myself. I was 17 um, to pursue acting. And it's like, I, I get why people might raise an eyebrow at that. But at the same time, my parents were such. Envelope pushers themselves that it's not it's also not not too surprising to me so yeah I moved to LA um, my mom and my siblings came out here with me for the first couple months until I got sort of settled and it looked like I was going to stay here I started um, I was insanely lucky and I just started working that first year that I was out he- out, out here and uh, everything just kind of snowballed from there and with my faith. It did challenge me. And I write about this in the book. Um, I was very steeped in what a lot of people call purity culture. Um, the very I definitely have
0: so many questions about that I want to talk to you about. Yeah.
1: Yes, yes. So there, there's a little overlap there with my move to LA and my, my the the purity culture that I grew up in colliding a lot from the world I that imagine. I had to wear, the boys that I had to kiss in scenes. Uh a lot of that and so i was it was very i always i felt so torn the first few years in la that was a word that came up in my journals when i was rereading them while i was writing the book i would write about i, I just feel so torn between what i half think god's called me to and also what i grew up believing how he wanted me be to live um, i
0: think one thing you brought up is your first kiss was like in acting school and yeah. you felt like you were betraying what whoever your future husband would be
1: yes so i was i was uh one of of the like ultra goody, goody Christian girls who like not only wore a promise ring and like was deeply committed to not having sex until marriage. I also thought that it would be a betrayal to my future spouse to even have a crush on a boy and not every teenager in the several youth groups that I attended in my nomadic years. Um, not everyone took it that to heart. I think by nature, I'm just a person that takes a lot of things very literally and very seriously. Um, and so I definitely take responsibility for how I interpreted a lot of what I was being fed, but it was still stuff I was being fed and I didn't have any, I, I didn't ob- even observe anything else because I was just very sheltered. So, um, I, my first kiss was an acting class and I was racked with guilt for it. I didn't even want to do it, but I, I felt like I had to, um, because this is the job that God, God's called me to, and it's also not Alice kissing this guy. It's my character kissing his character, and there were all these ways that I tried to do There's mis- a
0: way to rationalize it, if you want <laughs> yes. to. <Yeah. laughs>
1: yes, and I, I both wanted to and needed to if I was going to stay pursuing acting, and again, it, did, it just didn't look like there were any other open doors for me, so whether it was an excuse on my part or just how my logic at the time worked, it just seemed like this is what I have to do. And this is what goes with it. If I'm a young girl going out for young girl roles, you're usually going to be involved in a love story. So, um, so it was really, yeah, it was really hard. The, The language that I had to use, everything about my value system was just challenged right off the bat.
0: When you start getting so you were able to rationalize that when you start getting gigs and this stuff is happening on screen to to the point that whatever happens in an acting class, no one's going to really see outside of the class when it's on screen. People will. How did your family react to that? Any of that stuff when they're seeing you doing it on screen?
1: You know, I don't I don't recall if, if they did have any sort of reaction, I don't recall them sharing it with me in regards okay. to that. Um, cause I think, I think, uh, I remember when I started modeling a little bit more out in Los Angeles, I was more worried about what my parents might think of that because some of it was more risque than the acting roles that I'd done up until that point. So that I was more worried about, but, um, they didn't, I don't recall any sort of major conversations, uh, about it, um, from friends back home. I remember like, oh, how would your future husband feel if he saw you doing this? And my response was like, well, if he's my future husband, God will give him the grace to deal with it because I still believe that I was being unfaithful to him, but because God asked me to. So (laughs) (laughs)
0: there's always a, there's always a rationalization (laughs) anyway. So speaking of purity culture, you write a lot about Joshua Harris's book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, um, which has been in the news for a few years now, recently, like 20 years after it came out. But I think uh, one of the things you wrote in there is that that book, which heavily tells People to do the whole purity thing. No, no sex until marriage, no anything until marriage. And I think you wrote in there, it scarred your sense of womanhood. And then you started doing the act. I forgot if you uh, read the book before you started doing the acting gigs and the the scenes like that. But I was really curious because on this podcast, I know we've talked a lot about that book and Joshua Harris, but I'm really curious, in the past couple of years, Joshua Harris has distanced himself from the book and basically uh, kind of apologized, kind of left uh, distancing himself from his own creation. I was really curious to hear, what do you think about the fallout and the distancing of that book? Because you get the benefit of seeing that all happen after you've already learned to walk away from all that.
1: Yes. So, so, um, hmm. okay. So presently I find myself feeling deeply sympathetic to Joshua Harris today and I view him as just as much a survivor Uh, of purity culture as I was. And I can say that having also been a quote unquote victim of the purity culture message that his book preached. um, I feel like some, I'm definitely aware some people think I give too much grace for that. Uh, For me, he was 21 when that book came out and me at 21 or 2019 around the age, maybe he was writing the book. Like I, I, I just think How else was he supposed to turn out, kind of? You know, we all turn out differently. But um, I have a lot of admiration for him today, for how he's uh, done his best to own up to a lot of the harm that it's caused and how he has distanced himself and gone through his own uh, deconstruction of his faith. And um, that said yeah, at the time when I was a teenager, that book really did, uh, scar, leave some deep scars on, on my sense of womanhood. Uh, but it was biblically based. So that said, as much as I might've found it consolidated all in I kiss dating goodbye, it's still just in the Bible, the OG book of purity culture. (laughs) Um, and it's, uh, there was another book too, and I write about I write about this. I went to a purity conference by led by Eric and Leslie Ludy, who wrote "When God Writes Your Love Story," which is a lot like "I Kissed Dating Goodbye." But that book almost made a deeper influence on me than "I Kissed Dating Goodbye" because it reaffirmed Joshua Harris's message. When I was a little bit older, I was fifteen when I attended the Ludies conference and read their book, and it seemed to focus more on the um, what I interpreted it as the. Reward aspect of it. If you surrender your will to God, God will reward your faith with this amazing love story. I know Harris's message touched on that too, but I've maybe it's just my recollection, but the Lutie's message really hit that for me. So, um, not sure how much I want to get into too much of spoiler alerts, but I've talked about this before in in uh, other podcasts. Long story short the future husband that I waited for and prayed for and wrote letters to and was completely saving my emotions and body for, um, that all kind of got debunked when my first year out in Los Angeles, a guy from my youth group back in Colorado also moved to LA. We were friends for a couple months, nothing more. Had quite firmly established that we were not dating because I didn't date. Mm-hmm. Out of the blue, one day just announced that he was my future husband.
0: Yeah. It was I, a weird pickup line. Yeah.
1: yeah. It It is a very weird pickup line. <laughs> um, and it's he was three years older than me. He was 20, I was 17. And you know, he grew up very similarly to how I did. We went to the same church back in Colorado. And um, so in some ways, I can't really fault him. Uh for that pickup line, um, I do think it came from a very genuine place. However, it it uh, I felt deeply betrayed, not just by him as a friend, but more importantly by God, because. I bought into the promise that if I, if I waited faithfully for my future husband, that God would give me this epic love story and I'd be so head over heels in love and we would have the best sex ever. Of course, how would we know? Because we didn't have anyone else to compare it to, but you know, it was just going to be like, like a rom-com epic, um, is what I kind of thought. And, and that it was revealed to be this guy who I loved as a brother. I loved as a friend, you know, I did not, I didn't, I just didn't, wasn't into him that way. Um, But it's so strange to say now. but I just never once even questioned him. I never once even questioned that, like, did God really tell you that? Like, like it just was so far out of the realm of possibility in my mind that anyone would just say that unless they genuinely believed it. Um, And I do think he genuinely believed it is the sad, funny part. Uh, And we were, uh, I use the word betrothed in the book and <laughs> yes. that is the word betrothed in my journals at the time. Um, because I didn't feel engaged, engaged to me, felt like a happy thing, whereas a betrothal felt like an arrangement and it felt like an arrangement to me. I, I wasn't asked. Um, I was just told and the clincher of course was, uh, and I've spoken about this before. So spoiler alert, but also not so spoiler alert, <laughs> um, my, the, the purity culture setup in the books uh, on purity culture and courtship versus dating all say that um, you'll know when you've met the one, even though you don't date them, because God's going to affirm it through your spiritual elders, through your pastors and your parents, primarily, if you have godly parents, and um, I did have very godly parents and so did the guy and both my dad and the guy's mom affirmed that they too had heard from God that we were going to get married. And so, uh, I, my world was both going right on track and completely upside down. Cause on the outside, my betrothal happened like to the T, like we weren't going to kiss till our wedding day. It, It just couldn't have been more book perfect. Um, but on the inside was just, I was wrestling with so much, um, betrayal and guilt and anger and guilt for feeling angry and betrayed and trying to force myself to be, just be grateful, you know, like just be grateful. Um, submit. And, and, uh, I did my best. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I did my best (laughs) and, uh, it lasted, uh, two months before, my mom, who had stopped going to church by that point, was the one who could see that I was deeply unhappy and gave me the courage to eventually break it off. And it was it was just the scariest thing that I'd ever ever done because Well, it's, it's
0: not like, just a breakup, it's it's almost turning your back on God in an emotional sense.
1: That's very much what it felt like to me. And 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 also turning my face towards Satan. Because if you weren't in alignment with God, there was only one other alignment you could be in and that was that of the devil and hell. So it was for me it was it was not just breaking up with a guy that I wasn't even in love with. It wasn't just turning my back on God and walking away from the ideology that I I'd, that had guided my entire life thus far. It was also for the first time being like Satan come get me. You're going to get me now. I just know it because I'd been indoctrinated with the belief that when we disobey God, even though he gave us free will, to disobey him we opened ourselves up to, to eternal destruction um, and to being the devil's plaything, uh, And God would forgive us if we'd go back in alignment with God. But if we didn't, then we were, you know, like Satan was free to have at us. So without God's protection. And so uh, it, it, what followed for me was just like my first crisis of faith, my first year of, um, and I, I write about this too, about how that's, Around a year or so after I ended the betrothal was when I realized that I'd ended my relationship with God in an evangelical sense. I still very much believed in God, and then I, I also had met some very liberal Christians out here in LA. Who? No made, way. Yeah, <laughs> and they they baffled me, and to be honest with you, they still baffle me <laughs> um, for some different reasons. Um, we've all learned to like like some of my closest friends uh, are are identify as Christian or are deeply spiritual or use the language of Jesus, and and we I, I'm very lucky to have in my life people who um who can tolerate my my bafflement and genuine questions like but but how would you haven't actually read what jesus said does do you call yourself a christian like i try to be nice about it but at the end of the day it's like i don't get it guys i don't get it (laughs) um but you know everyone it's it i'm a huge advocate for free speech and so if someone wants to call themselves something and it means something different to them than it does to me it Good. Go for it. Because I'm going to call myself something that means something different to me than it does to you, whether it's atheist or something else.
0: (laughs) I don't know if you've seen this, but there are like YouTube channels with young women who are still advocating purity culture. And part of that baffles my mind because I feel like so many Christians who grew up in that environment have had the courage to speak out about the harm, not even saying you're like, go run wild. It's good for you. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, listen, you don't have to take this by the letter, like kissing someone you genuinely like, like, trust me, not the end of the world. They've been very outspoken about that. And the harm that the purity culture movement kind of caused them but there are still people out there pushing that wait till your wedding day, till you do anything, and you will know it in your heart if God is sending you a message. Have you seen any of those? And like, do you watch any of those and like want to scream at the computer or <laughs> I don't know if you've seen any of those since then.
1: I haven't come across too many. There's a couple of, there are a couple of accounts on Instagram that I follow um, that are more post purity culture that occasionally will post about these present day, like um, neo, like revised purity culture advocates. And uh, it, it kind of, I feel grateful to be at a place now where it kind of just gives me a chuckle instead of getting me worked up again. Cause there was definitely <laughs> a time where I would have gotten, really worked up because I would have still felt threatened that they were right. And that's just why I would have worked up. Um, But I think now it's just like, oh man, like I see, I see, and and I I have conflicted feelings about this, but I see, I, to my observation, there's a huge um, revival, if you will, of like what I call like a a Christianity inspired spiritual movement um, where people who are not biblically literate, but are still using the brand of Christianity to incorporate in their spiritual practice and spiritual ideals. It's, it's, it's confusing to me. And at the same time, I'm kind of grateful for it because it is a lot more accepting and open-minded and LGBTQ affirming than certainly the type of Christianity I grew up with. But there's still for me on a philosophical and logical standpoint doesn't add, just doesn't make sense to my mind, but it doesn't need to. It makes sense to theirs. And I consider them allies because they can use the language to speak to the more hardcore evangelical leaning people. Um, when you're well, still-
0: that's one thing you get from your book, which is you can't doubt the fact that you were devout, that you grew up a Christian. Like, no, you are very much steeped in Christianity for such a long part of your life. You know what you're talking about when you're saying this stuff that makes a difference, uh, yeah. You also said you it wasn't just the purity culture thing, you also read a lot of like the James Dobson books yes. uh growing up too. What sort of influence was that for you?
1: For me, uh, the whole focus on the family Institute, um, with, with James Dobson, like it, it influenced the, the movies I watched. Um, I wasn't allowed to read secular magazines. I got guideposts for teens, which is like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like uh, uh-huh. yeah, my, my sex education was a book by Dr. James Dobson called preparing for adolescence. And it was, um, <laughs> <I>
0: <laughs> which, read about is you, which is where everyone should get all their sex advice. Yeah.
1: From. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, uh, I, I write in the book how it's like, I learned about masturbation through that book oh, and no. uh, yeah. And like, it was so confusing because Dr. Dobson wrote that, you know, you shouldn't feel ashamed if you masturbate, but I'm going to leave that between you and God, basically. And I, I was surprised
0: like, when you said that. I'm like, he said that really? Oh, interesting.
1: Kind of comes across as a little more progressive for like an ultra conservative Christian doctor. It really does. Yeah. But, that, but, and, and so for at first I was like, oh, like there's this thing called masturbation. Cool. Oh, it's it, he seems to support it. But then there was that that l- little line of like, but you know, everyone should really prayerfully consider this. And it's between you and God. And I was like, oh man, but like lust is definitely wrong. And I don't know how to masturbate without also having lustful thoughts. So it must just be wrong. Or and- maybe
0: God's sending a message. Who knows?
1: Yeah, who knows?
0: <laughs> but th- you mentioned that he influenced the pop culture you consumed. I think you said your parents forbade you from any of that pop culture stuff. Um, so I, it was really surprising that they were relatively fine with you modeling, with you trying out for uh, going to Hollywood period. Yeah. Cause I mean, I'm wondering how much of that scene, how much of Hollywood, like, did you even know what Hollywood meant in a, in a sense, because You were basically told, don't consume anything that comes from there.
1: Yeah. Uh, I was allowed to watch, like, Disney movies and some movies that were rated G, but even some G-rated animated cartoon movies, like, I wasn't allowed to see Fern Gully because it was (laughs) demonic. I wasn't, you know, like, it was very selective at my parents' discretion what would be okay and what would not be. So, no, I, I was... I, I'm woefully to this day behind the times of what someone in my profession should know about the classics, about um, the history of certain actors and acting techniques, and um, just like classics, like I've still never seen the movie *Greece*, for instance. And like I'm not a singer, I don't do musicals, but like I should see that. Like it there's should, probably like, there's a Reddit,
0: <laughs> uh, there's a subreddit called Nostalgia where it's a lot of people who are like in their 30s and 40s saying, "Remember this from our childhood." And I wonder how much of that you'd, you would see I now. Know. And you're like, I, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I remember on Facebook, there'd be these things gro- going around, like, you know, you're a nineties kid if, and like, mm-hmm. I, I must not have been a nineties kid because <laughs> I don't give any of the things like, I, and it's fun. I, I particularly enjoy what I come across. Like, you know, you're, you know, you're an, an, an ex evangelical if, cause I can relate to all those. Um, I even wrote on the dare to doubt blog a little bit a, a while ago, but, but anyway, it's, uh, I had a lot of catching up to do. I still do. Um, it is, it will always be kind of an amazement to me that my parents were as supportive as they were. But one of the reasons that I, that I'm uh, grateful for and that helps clarify it for me and that I, I am happy to be able to say is my parents change a lot too. Um, they are very, they've, I think for uh, there were several periods in my childhood where they were deeply involved in one type of Christianity and then deeply involved in another, deeply involved in no organized religion at all, and then deeply involved in a more metaphysical curiosity thing. Like, they're very evolving people. And um, for all of the frustrations that I definitely had growing up with them, like, I do— Today, very much appreciate that they're. Uh, my parents are always open to change and always open to to growing and being challenged. And I think by the time I was a by the time I was seventeen, and moving to LA, um, they were not in the same place spiritually that they were when I was nine and ten, and we were involved in the Toronto blessing. So I think had I gotten the opportunity, had I been seventeen in the mid 90s my parents probably would might not have been as supportive of me moving to LA and pursuing modeling and acting but it was like the early 2000s and their faith had evolved by then as well and so i think that that definitely contributes to them being so supportive
0: of me. I wanna I wanna bring up Dare to Doubts, since you mentioned it, but before I do that, really quick, you wrote about a pastor named Rodney Howard Brown and these holy laughter revivals, and I don't know if you're aware of why he's been in the news lately as well because he's still doing that, and I've seen those videos, and they're they're in they are holy laughter revivals. You can imagine it; it's that. Um, But he also I was wondering if you were watching the news because he was one of the first pastors to really get arrested this year for trying to keep his church open during the pandemic, uh, I think, in Tampa, Florida. And I don't know if like I had not really heard his name that much until the pandemic happened.
1: Yes. No, it was. um... It was it, it it was both surprising and not surprising to see his name making headlines again this past spring, uh, in regarding the, the pandemic and his flouting of the regulations to get his congregants together. Um it, you know, Rodney Howard Brown was a celebrity in my childhood. Um, but he's a very niche pastor in the real world. He really world. is, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, that's
0: why it shook me to see his name. I understood James Dobson being in your yeah. book, but I was like, whoa, Rodney Howard Brown. Like, yeah. that's a name I have not heard in memoirs about people leaving christianity ever
1: yeah yeah so it's 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 so interesting we all grow up in our little bubbles and there's these like famous people in our little bubbles right and, like <laughs> there were several in mind like some of them are a little bit more well known like um uh lou angle who did the call in dc uh the call it's called the call um everywhere he he worked his way quite high up the U.S. politician ladder in the Republican Party. Um,
0: You're doing the seven dominions or uh, what am I thinking of? Dominionism or something seven mountains something like that. I exactly. can't remember if that's flew angle but
1: <laughs> um yeah no, so the church that I went to that he came and visited had a school within the church called Dominion. I'm very familiar okay. with Dominionism, Christian nationalism, all of that and that was that was like another chapter of of my my migratory upbringing. Um but yeah there are so there are some some of my childhood celebrities that are more also publicly known like rodney howard brown for getting arrested for holding a yeah. pandemic or lou angle who's gotten a little bit of press for you know being very tight with a lot of christian right politicians um but some of them are also just still pretty niche like uh john Arnott, who was the lead pastor of the toronto airport christian fellowship which is where the toronto blessing was birthed um but yeah rodney howard brown man seeing seeing that guy's face still after all these years uh elicits a physical response. Really. <laughs> um, I can imagine
0: if you get a chance to search for his laughter revivals and you don't know what we're talking about, you should look that up. And one, <laughs> One other thing I wanted to bring up is you watched the movie Jesus Camp and also talked about having like a almost physical revulsion to do it uh, to it. Can you talk about that really quick?
1: Yes, I I started watching it. I got maybe 10 minutes into the film, 10, 15 minutes into the film, and I couldn't and I couldn't finish that movie until years later, because when I first came across it. I believe I was 20, and I was still very much a believer. I still very much believed in God, um, still called myself a Christian-slash-follower-of-Christ at that point, because I was starting to segue into progressive Christianity and just didn't like the label of Christian. Um, so, I was questioning, but still very much a believer, And I didn't like thinking about my past. I didn't like thinking about my upbringing. It always brought on more questions that I didn't know how to answer, like my first day at school. Um, And uh, what my boyfriend at the time put on Jesus Camp, and it opens with this children's pastor um, praying for a bunch of these kids who all start, they all start praying in tongues and their hands are up and they're like crying and the spotlights are hitting their faces in the auditorium. And it's all, it was all so familiar to me. And I couldn't understand the emotional reaction that I was having. What I know now is that I was, uh, I was triggered, you know, it it Mm -hmm. put me right back in that place of thinking I have to give these adults the performance expected of me.
0: You were those, you were one of those kids.
1: I was one of those kids. And I, it, the documentary went on and ta- brought in Lou Angle too. It shows Lou Angle, and I was looking for. I would like pause and look for myself in the crowd because I was just so <laughs> sure I would see myself because I was like, I, I remember this. I remember I could have been there. Was it this conference? I don't know because I was so steeped in it, and um, it makes me feel hot right now, even, yeah. even remembering that because it was uh, it was so surreal to have had some distance from that chapter of my life to be so confronted with it and to see it from. A much more evolved perspective of like, what the fuck was that? Mm-hmm. Part of my language, if this is a, a non-language. Oh, word. it's
0: it's a rated G show, so <laughs> okay. yeah. No, you're fine. You're fine. Um, um, but I understand that reaction. I mean, it's a very. It, it seems, I think, to a lot of outsiders, like, okay, fundamentalist Christian uh, camp. Okay, I mean, this is what I accept, but surely this is only these people it doesn't seem like necessarily it's this big movement except it really is there's a lot of kids who went through that and and dealt with that and i think even some of the kids in that movie have publicly said we have since left that oh that's news
1: to me i'm going to have to yeah. look wow. i think the
0: guardian did like a 10 year retrospective after the movie came out cuz those kids are probably what in their 20s now early yeah. 20s and yeah a number of them are like they're they're in the same position you're in where yeah. they're like, yeah, I went through that, and I have since left. And yeah. so there, there's hope. There's yeah. like a the, the tunnel. there.
1: Yeah, can, yeah.
0: Can you talk about Dare to Doubt and why you started it and what you're hoping to do with it?
1: I started Dare to Doubt for these kids, like myself. I started it for me, first and foremost. I wanted to make a resource site for my I, – I did this two years ago, and I set out to make the website that I needed when I was 21 – and really just falling apart, following my loss of faith. Um, And I really needed therapy. I was in therapy for three years. Um, I had uh, uh, crippling panic attacks um, after I lost my faith, and I didn't really attribute it to the loss of my faith as the reason why. But long story short— All my shit hit the fan. I I fell apart completely, lost all my marbles, really needed a lot of professional help putting myself back together, um, would later come to learn about religious trauma, religious trauma syndrome, how it often mimics complex post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and panic attacks are totally normal when you have a loss of faith, um, and so I wanted to make a website that would make it easier for people like my younger self to find the help that they needed, and- um, for me, the help that I needed was definitely secular. I was leery I, when I lost my faith; I lost it in full. I didn't. I couldn't just rebrand God in my mind. I, I, I tried for a couple years. Um, I really tried, but the theolo- the Bible and the theology itself was just it it was just not logical enough
0: for me. It was kind of an all or nothing thing. You had the Christianity you, you grew up with, or that was it. There wasn't like a middle compromise ground there.
1: There, there wasn't. Um, and, and again, you know, like, I think I, I can be like that in, in many ways, like very, and, and some people have said, oh, that's because, you know, it's your fundamentalist black and white thinking. And it's like, maybe, but I, no, it doesn't matter to me. It just, it, if it doesn't hold up, it doesn't hold up. And I, I'm i tired of making justifications for why it should, um, because God was just never real to me. I, he was very real to me as an idea, but never real to me personally. And I respect that he, she, they, them, it are to some on an, on an experiential level that I will never understand or be able to participate in. Um, but it, it, bottom line, God just wasn't real to me. And I was fiercely allergic to the slightest hint of faith. Um, I met with some therapists out here in LA who were possibly what you might call spiritual. I called them spiritual. They were into like things like meditation. Um, to me, I'm now at a place where I can think of meditation in a sort of secular sense. Like I know Sam Harris, one of our most right, right. of today um, is very into meditation. And I've done some his right. meditations to try to re-experiment with it. But to this day, it still is a button for me. Um, it just feels too much like prayer and like nothing happens. Like, well, it's about the discipline. It's about the discipline. I'm like, yeah, that's what they said about prayer too, though, guys.
0: Like, <laughs>
1: it's just not my thing. Um, it,
0: it is really hard. I've heard from a lot of people who said when they were looking for therapists, They trying to find someone who could not see their loss of faith as a bad thing and just kind of accept it and be coming to therapy from a secular perspective is important to them. There's actually uh, I believe this is a group called Recovering from Religion. They actually have a project called the Secular Therapist Project for exactly the reason you're mentioning, because you want someone who's who's going to go there, go from there And then help you from that baseline, not try to make you feel bad for being non-religious.
1: Yes, yes. And that's, that's, it's organizations like that, that I really wanted to help spread awareness of. Um, And there's, there's others like there's AA, a secular AA meetings. You know, there's, um, there's so many resources out there that I'd never heard of until I started building the site. And not just for ex-Christians, but ex-Amish people, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, ex, ex, you know, like. Scientologists. Um, and I kind of wanted to make a site that offered just a starting point. It's not thorough. There are so many organizations out there and and therapists and
0: peer support. The links are really helpful. Uh, like you're saying, uh, there are specific websites for like the ex-Amish, the, the uh, ex-Orthodox Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Like those are there, but this is a good generic kind of starting point for so many people. Um, the website there is daretodoubt.org. And Alice uh, Gretchen, her new book is called Wave Word. You should check it out. Uh, I'm not kidding when I say it's it's a really well-written, uh, heartbreaking at times, but also really uplifting book about what it means to to leave religion and the difficulty that may be, but also that you can come out fine on the other side. So congratulations on your new book. Uh, people thank should check you. it out. And thank you for your time. I appreciate thank
1: it. You so much. I really appreciate it too. <laughs>